of you to take to heart. Uh, the story is told of a, an old drunk, country drunk, many years ago that uh, was sleeping off his drunkenness out in the woods, and he was woke up by noise one Sunday morning, and he got up, and he was still hungover and still kind of loopy, still kind of drunk, and he wanders out of the woods down to the creek, and when he comes to the creek, there's a, a pastor there, and the pastor is baptizing, and the, the Drunk doesn't recognize what's going on, so he wanders into the water. And as he wanders into the water, if you remember those old water baptisms, there's a line of people getting baptized and a preacher's there, and he comes from behind them. And he just kind of bumps into the crowd and bumps into the preacher. Well, the preacher stops what he's doing. He turns around and looks at the, the drunk and almost knocked out because of the breath and the smell of alcohol that was off of him. And he looked at the drunk. He said, Brother, are you here to find Jesus? The drunk kind of pauses for a moment and goes, yeah, I guess I'm here to find Jesus. So the pastor grabs him before he knows what to do and turns him around and dunks him under the water. The drunk's under the water a few seconds. He pulls him back up and the pastor says, brother, did you find Jesus? And the drunk says, I, no, I hadn't found Jesus. The pastor says, well, let's do this again. He takes him, he dunks him, he holds him under the water for a few more minutes and he pulls him out. He says, brother, have you found Jesus yet? The drunk says, no, I hadn't found Jesus. And so the pastor takes him one more time, a little more angry this time, a little exasperated, crowds watching, people there. He takes him and he holds him under a little while longer this time. Uh, about 45 seconds, the drunk's kind of flopping his arms and kicking his feet, and the pastor pulls him up, and, you know, the best country pastor voice says, brother, I'm telling you, tell us you found Jesus this time. And the drunk kind of wipes his eyes and takes a breath and says, pastor, are you sure this is where he fell in? Now, funny, but I think that's sad, true, because I believe many times when the world looks at the church and the world looks at Christians, that's the kind of caricature that they see. I think sometimes we, when we look at how we project ourselves out into the lost world, out into the culture at large, we may be shocked at what they see. Because you see, I'm worried that the church today is spending all of its time answering questions that the lost world's not asking. See, we're spending all of our time talking about things that they're not asking about. We're, we're arguing over who believes the Bible the most and, and what translation is the most biblical translation. And uh, Nowadays, it's arguing over who is more reformed or not reformed, which is a old new phrase for Calvinism. Who, who believes the points of Calvinism? And the churches are arguing and discussing and preachers are spending months teaching on why they believe the Bible more or why their translation is better or why they're more Calvinistic and, or why our worship is better than their worship or this style is more important in that style. We argue and discuss on whether or not women can do this or do that in a church or can have a say in how much they can or can't do. And all these things we're talking about, the, the world could care less. Because see, they're asking different questions. They're asking questions about why is my family falling apart? Why, why can't I make ends meet? Why is there suffering in the world? Why am I still, even though I have the dream job and I have all the money that I want and my family is perfect, but there's still something empty inside of me? And we're not answering those questions. And when it comes to, to dialoguing with them or finding out what they're talking about or finding out uh, what they're asking about, instead of talking, instead of dialoguing, we fall back to religious cliches. We fall back on uh, these talking points, if you will, of things that sound spiritual, 
And what it does is it ends up cutting off conversation. And it ends up building walls instead of building bridges. See, instead of looking and listening to what people are saying and searching for an open door, trying to search for an open heart, we're building walls. And the very people that need the good news the most, the very people that need to hear what God has to say for their lives have tuned us out. Now people say, but churches are still growing, but churches are growing because we're swapping sheep from one church to the next church. 6,000 churches close every month in the United States of America. 6,000 churches. And so those people go to another church and this church says we're growing because look at all the people that are here. But we're not engaging the culture. We're not engaging the people out there that need the message the most. See, we train our missionaries. When our missionaries go overseas, one of the most important trainings that they get is how to build bridges to dialogue. If you're in a Muslim country or an Ind a Hindu country or maybe in one of the Eastern religious countries, they talk about finding common ground so that you can find a starting place to get into a conversation. And in the Muslim countries, they talk about Jesus. Jesus is in the Quran. He's called Isa, and they talk about Jesus being a prophet. It's a great way to begin to dialogue. Uh, it's a great way to get in. Abraham is in the Quran. Uh, the, the patriarchs are in the Quran. And that's a great way for them to begin to dialogue about commonalities that we have. But yet we don't do that. They're doing it overseas. We train them to do it overseas. But here in North America, we don't do that. You see, instead of trying to build bridges, we're all about trying to tell people what we believe and how we believe it, but we're not sharing with them why we believe it. And you see, it's in the whys where hearts are changed. We're all about standing up and saying, well, that's what God says, or that's what the Bible says. And in saying that, in the way that we say it, it totally shuts down any dialogue or any communication that we might have a chance to talk with somebody about. And it breaks my heart because what happens is, we end up uh, just talking about these cliches and these catchphrases instead of really finding out the answers for ourselves so that we can share it with other people. We've grown spiritually lazy, I think. And it's real easy when we face an issue or a subject that we're uncomfortable with that's a gray area maybe in Scripture where it doesn't just say this is right or this is wrong or it's an area that we struggle with. It's real easy for us to say, I believe what the Bible says. But the question people are asking is, what does the Bible say? And when they ask those questions, you and I back up. You see, we've got to be willing to dig and to research and to, to get into this book and find out not just the what it says, but why it says it. Because the world knows what it says. The lost world around us knows what the church is supposed to stand for. What they're wanting to know is why. Why do we believe what we believe? Why do we believe that Jesus can make a difference in their life? Why do we believe that God hates sin? Why do we believe that, that God gives grace to all of us and love is available? Not just some rote spiritual statements. You see, the problem is we've been real good in the church at indoctrinating. We're real good at telling you, this is what you need to believe. This is what we believe. We're Baptists. We believe these six things. And most of you can quote, this is what I believe. But we're not real good at educating, teaching people why we believe what we believe. 
And the problem is, is not that pastors are unwilling or teachers are unwilling. It's that most of us don't want to take the time to know. And then when it comes time to engage, when it comes time to build bridges, when it comes time to go out and engage our culture outside the walls of this church, we're uncomfortable, so we back away or we put up walls. See, this morning in our series of Found Faithful, uh, we're going to look at two very different men who had a not-so-by-chance meeting on a very dusty uh, desert road. One man came seeking what the Holy Spirit wanted. The other man came seeking truth. And when spirit and truth met on that dusty road, their lives were changed. And when spirit and truth came together, it touched both of them. And not only that, but it left a legacy that made a difference on a whole continent. So if you have your Bible, I want you to turn to the book of Acts. The book of Acts, uh, chapter 8. Uh, we're looking at another group of characters. We've been looking at characters all through this series. And uh, as we look at these characters, we're going to be talking about uh, the, a faith that has the willingness to seek the truth, a faith that is willing to seek the truth. Now, you have part of our passage on the blue sheet. Uh, I didn't give you all of it on there, and so we're going to cover some of it. And so let, let's start reading in chapter 8, verse 26. So now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, to the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch who was an important official in charge of the treasury of Candique. And that C is a, a K in, in the way they pronounce it. A, a treasurer of Candique, the queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship and on his way home he was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stick with it. The word there is like glue. Go and follow that chariot. And so uh, in that short passage we have our two characters and we have the setting for where we're going to see they meet. Now you got Philip first, and Philip is someone that now we're first introduced to in Acts chapter 6. We find that Philip is one of the first deacons along with Stephen in Acts chapter 6. The church needs help. There's, uh, the apostles can't do it all, and so they nominate several men to come out and to basically wait on people, to help people, to minister to people. And they call them deacons, and Philip is one of those deacons. And we learned about Stephen a couple of weeks ago, and Stephen was one of those deacons, and they were doing ministry. Stephen uh, got called before the Sanhedrin. Remember his sermon, Stephen is stoned to death. He is a martyr. And when Stephen dies, the church scatters. The Christians flee. And uh, God had a plan with that. They, they take the gospel all over the place. And Philip ends up going to Samaria, which is really uh, not the region of Samaria, but a small town that's west of Jerusalem. So he travels out west of Jerusalem going towards the sea and he stops in Samaria. In the first part of chapter 8, it tells us that in Samaria he's preaching, he's teaching, he is doing miracles. Matter of fact, he is so successful that it says in, in chapter 8, first part there, that the people of the town were overjoyed that he was with them. There was much joy in the city, is way one of the translations says. And so Philip is very successful. God is using him. God is empowering him. And then all of a sudden this angel shows up and says, listen, I need you to leave. Now, uh, one of the hardest things to do is to leave when something is going great. See, it's easy to leave when something's going bad. It's really hard to be obedient to God when things are going great. But Philip doesn't even ask questions. He trusts what the Spirit says. And the Spirit didn't even tell him exactly what he was going for or what he was going to find when he goes. He said, listen, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go south to this desert road that leads towards Egypt, and, and I'll tell you what to do when you get there. And so the Bible says Philip just gets, gets up and leaves. These people are being healed. People are coming to know Christ, and he gets up and leaves. 
And he heads down, now if you're looking at a map and you know where Jerusalem is, uh, down towards uh, the coast where Gaza is, and then it, all of a sudden the road goes dead south towards Egypt and towards Africa. And on that road, he comes across this second man who is an Ethiopian eunuch. Now, the first thing that you need to know is uh, when we say Ethiopia, it's not the same country that we think of today as Ethiopia. Uh, Ethiopia in biblical times and in early church times was a country that was just south of Egypt that uh, is sometimes referred to as Nubia. And uh, it's a very powerful country. It's probably uh, from where Jerusalem is, it's a little over uh, 1,200 miles probably to the nation of Nubia. And he is a, a, a very powerful, rich ruler in this country of Nubia. And Nubia uh, was allies in many uh, historical events with Egypt. Matter of fact, history shows us that many of the Nubian kings, they called them Ethiopian kings and queens, were in uh, Pharaoh's court. They, some of them are even buried in some of the pyramids. There's uh, tribute paid to the Ethiopian king. So this guy's an important guy. He's in a chariot. He's not by himself. Uh, rich uh, workers of the king didn't travel by themselves. There's probably a huge entourage. Okay, and so this huge entourage, uh, he works for Candique, which that's not her name. That's her title, just like Pharaoh. Uh, she is the head queen mother of the whole nation, and he handles all of her money. So he's got money. He's got power. Uh, it goes without saying he's African, so he's black. Uh, so you've got this black... Uh, African, uh, and we find out that he's a Jew. Uh, he's a Jew that has come all the way from Nubia to go to Jerusalem to worship at the temple. Um, and, and in worshiping in the temple, we know that because he's a eunuch, because that's something that he's gone through, according to Deuteronomy, he is unclean. So he can't go in the temple. He can't even go inside the gates. All he can do is go and worship at the gates and be what they call a proselyte or a God-fearer. So this man is so devout that he has traveled all of this way to go to Jerusalem and stand outside the gates and worship. And so he, is, he has done that and he's headed back down and so they're traveling together and while he's going, he is reading aloud the book of Isaiah. Now you also know that he's got money because people didn't have translations of the Bible. They didn't carry around. Jews didn't carry around scrolls. Uh, it, they, you had to be wealthy. So he's probably taking this translation that he picked up in Jerusalem back to Nubia. And so he's in a chariot, and all of a sudden Philip comes down, and it says they ran into each other. Now they're traveling the same way. And you know, when I was a kid, and I can picture this story in vacation Bible school or in Sunday school, it, it was always as if they were the only ones on the road, and there's this lone chariot with this guy, you know, pushing his horse, and Philip comes out of nowhere and surprises him and says, you know, God, that's not the way it was. It, that, it was just common commerce. They were traveling down the road, the whole entourage, and the Bible says Philip is told to go and stick to this chariot. And so he is walking. They traveled in crowds. They, if you found a caravan going where you were going, you latched on because there were thieves. Uh, remember the story of the Good Samaritan. This is the same road that that story takes place on. And so as he's traveling, they're traveling together. So he kind of hooks up and he's walking behind this chariot. And as he's walking behind the chariot, he notices that the guy's reading the book of Isaiah. And so let's, let's keep reading and see what happens here. Look at verse 30. It says, Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. And he asked him, Do you understand what you're reading? Now this is Philip building a bridge. This is Philip engaging. You know, Philip could have come alongside and said a whole lot of things to him. But instead, Philip was being sensitive to the Spirit to listen 
for just the right time. Now, we don't know how long he had been walking. He may have been walking a while and listening to him read. And finally, he came to just the point where he was reading what Philip wanted to say something about. And Philip says, listen, do you really understand what you're reading? You see, he's being sensitive. Now, I want you to picture this. This is not a common mix. Okay, now, now think about this. You've got an African black Jew with his entourage. Okay, now an African black Jew with his entourage and you've got a white preacher deacon that's on the run. He's really been called outlaw now because they're, they're trying to kill the Christians. And these two guys all of a sudden come together knocking down barriers and begin to have a conversation. That's not something you would see every day. But Philip found a way to bridge that by dialoguing. He found a way to bridge, to reach in to the eunuch's heart by finding a common ground. And he does it by talking about this question of Isaiah. Keep reading what he says. The eunuch answers, how can I understand it unless someone explains it to me? So he invited Philip to come up and meet with him. The eunuch was reading a passage of scripture and he's reading from Isaiah 53. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before the shearers is silent. So he did not open his mouth, and in his humiliation he was deprived of justice. For who can speak of his descendants? For life is taken from the earth. For his life was taken from the earth. Now he's reading this passage, and we know he's probably reading the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew, because this is a different reading than actually Isaiah 53.2. Okay? This is not a literal reading from the Old Hebrew. He's reading the translation that is a Greek translation that would have been a common language for him to, to do commerce in, in Jerusalem and commerce in Nubia. Philip happens to know this Greek. And so as he's reading, and this is probably the one of the most powerful pictures of Isaiah's prophecy 800 years before the birth of Christ of the Messiah that would come and give his life willingly, that would suffer, that, that would be persecuted for mankind. It, it's a perfect bridge and the eunuch asked Philip, tell me please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? This wasn't just a question he was asking. Everybody asked this. The, the scholars asked this. Who is Isaiah talking about? Is this Elijah? Is this talking about Isaiah? Is this talking about the nation of Israel? They were all wanting to know. Well, guess what? Philip knew who it was talking about. And so this, this eunuch that was willing to say, this very religious eunuch that was willing to say, I don't have all the answers, who is this? Opened himself up to be able to learn real truth. And Philip says this. Philip began with that very passage and he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they traveled along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, here is water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? So as they're talking, he is sharing about Jesus. They built a bridge. And as he shares about Jesus, uh, the eunuch gets saved. He is dynamically saved. And all of a sudden, he's so excited about the message of Jesus and what it means to be baptized. He says, look, there's water. I want to be with you. I want to be baptized. Now, if you, most of your Bibles is, are missing verse 37. If you look down, you'll see verse 36 and then verse 38. Now, the reason is because 37 is not in the earliest manuscripts. We found a lot of manuscripts, and many people believe 37 was added later by a scribe to kind of explain what was going on here. Now, verse 37 uh, says, if you believe with all your heart, you can be baptized. And that eunuch answered, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And there's a lot of people that add that into baptism. Um, doesn't make it wrong or right. We, we just believe a scribe came to describe that the eunuch was excited and said, I believe. He professed with his mouth. 
And it says when they got there, uh, he gave the order to stop the chariot. And then both Philip and the, the eunuch went down into the water and Philip baptized him. And when he came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away. Philip baptized him and Philip transported. He was gone. God turned around and looked and Philip is no longer there. And, and the eunuch didn't see him again. But the eunuch went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appears at Azotus and traveled around preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. We don't see Philip again. Until later, Paul comes to Caesarea, and, and in Acts 21, Philip is there. He's got four daughters, the Bible says, that serve God. So Philip does his job, and he's gone. And the eunuch leaves totally changed. Historians believe that the eunuch went back to Nubia, and he converted the queen. The queen got saved. She made Christianity the, the faith of the Nubian kingdom, the Ethiopian kingdom at the time. And the Coptic church, which is the African Coptic church, which we now know as the Egyptian Coptic church, was founded by this very same eunuch. They go all the way back and say that their church, that church that's being persecuted in Egypt today, says that we were founded by the eunuch that encountered Philip on this road south. What an incredible story. So many great lessons in this story. So many, I mean, you could talk about evangelism and the call to evangelize and the call to minister. You could talk about how important one person is. I mean, do you realize that this one person was so important to God that he snatched Philip out of a successful ministry and said, go, I want you to share. We can talk about being led by the Holy Spirit. But there's two things that jump out with me this morning that uh, according to faith and talking about faith that I want you to think about. Two thoughts that I want us to look at for just a moment. And the first one comes from Philip. And, and it's an easy one to understand, but it's one we miss all the time. We have to, we must be sensitive to the Holy Spirit and learn to build bridges to those around us. And once we do, we can't be afraid to engage them. Now, it sounds like two things, but it's really one. You see, we have got to get to the place where we listen to the Holy Spirit to the point that we are able to build bridges that open the way for us to share the gospel to the lost world. Every day, this week, every day, you and I were surrounded with opportunities to engage somebody, to touch somebody's life. I call them divine encounters. But most of us missed them. Because, see, they're not going to come up to you and go, excuse me, hey, can you tell me about Jesus? They're not going to be sitting at the cafeteria and say, hey, what do you think about the Bible? They're not, they're not going to come out of nowhere on the phone or, and, and just all of a sudden say, tell me how I can get saved. But, you see, it's other little things that, that begin to open the door. You see, Philip didn't just come out riding and walking with this guy and say, listen, you better get saved. You need Jesus. Because the guy would have never listened to him. Instead, Philip said, I'm going to find a bridge. You're reading a passage that I believe talks about Jesus. And so he asked him the question. You see, you and I have got to be sensitive to the point that we are willing to open up conversations. It may not be one conversation. It may be lots of conversations. But we've got to start somewhere. And we have to have ears to hear, to listen, to be sensitive to the Spirit when the Spirit says, this is your chance. But the problem is we don't guard our language and our cliches and our catchphrases and we're so quick to jump out there to show our righteousness, to show how spiritual we are, that we shut off any point of bridging, any point of being able to share. You see, I, I believe sometimes with people you've got to earn the right to be heard. And that comes with learning to build bridges. 
I'm not saying you've got to compromise your beliefs. I'm not saying that you've got to be silent about what you understand, but we've got to be sensitive about how and when we need to share them. People want to know the whys. The whys that speak to their heart. Most of them know what you believe. Most of them know you're a Christian probably. They know what the Bible says. They want to know why. And the only way you're going to be able to share why is to find common ground and build bridges. You know, the Bible says always be prepared to give an answer. We always read that scripture. Always be prepared to give an answer for what? Why you have the hope that you have. Not what the hope is, but why do you have that hope? See, we can't be afraid to get out of our comfort zone and engage. Just this week, for Christians, there were two huge opportunities to engage our culture. Two huge opportunities that everyone was talking about. It was in all the media. It was in all the social media. It was on TV and it was in the news. Two opportunities, but so many Christians missed those opportunities because they were so quick to react instead of listening to build bridges. The first one was World Vision. And some of you may have seen the announcement that World Vision was just one of the largest Christian relief organizations. They, they sponsor children all over the world. They came out earlier this week and said that they had reversed their hiring policy and that now um, people with same-sex marriage could work for World Vision. Even though they said they believed that homosexuality was a sin, they said if you had same-sex marriage, you could work for World Vision. Two days later, they reversed that decision and went back to the original because of all the outcry, because of all the discussion. Listen, I heard so many comments this week, so many not helpful comments. Now, there were some that, that talked about what God would do in all of it and God's love, and, uh, but so many just shut off opportunities to share because, because you've got a whole lost world that all of a sudden that are hearing this and saying, what's the big deal? Why is it so important? Why would that bother you? Now, I've got several friends from high school that I haven't been in contact with in years that are gay, that are homosexual, some that are lesbian. Hadn't talked to them forever. We're Facebook friends. We talk every once in a while. Uh, they know I'm a Baptist minister. Uh, matter of fact, one of them is a former Baptist minister, music minister. He used to lead worship. Went to Baylor University, and now he's uh, in, a, in a gay relationship. We've never talked about what I think about their relationship. They know I'm a Baptist minister. They probably assume that. This week, three of those people emailed me or Facebook messaged me to ask me, as a minister, what do you think about this world vision thing? It was a, it was a bridge. Now, it would have been real easy for me to say, well, it's a sin and they were doing right. It would have been real easy for me to fall back on some cliche or fall back on something I heard a preacher preach or somebody say sometime. I, I sat and prayed and prayed before I responded and it provided me an opportunity to share my heart, the wise. I was able to tell them, listen, I believe that an organization that says the Bible is the truth and it's the foundation of everything that we're going to do and if the Bible says this, we cannot justify it in our hiring. We have to stand on the Word of God. But I also told them it would break my heart to think of the children and, and, and the countries that would pay a price because of this controversy. I also told them that, that I didn't believe God would stop them from feeding the hungry or, or from building houses if they were gay. Told them what I believed about it, but I told them why. And I told them my heart. And every, even if we didn't disagree, they still came back and said they respected my decision. And they, they opened dialogue. I believe I'll have a chance to talk to them now about these things. Because it's on the table. Whereas before, I couldn't address it. I wouldn't come out and go, hey, see, you're gay. You know that sin? You're going to hell. You know that, but see, that's, and we don't say it like that, but that's what they hear. 
The second thing that came up was the movie Noah. Now let, let me just say this. It's a horrible movie. Okay? It's not worth $10. Well, I, I've, I've seen, i got lots of clips that people sent me, a preview, trying to get people to get the church people to go. Uh, it, it's not biblical. It's more Lord of the Rings than it is uh, the Bible character Noah. There, there's a lot of craziness in it. Uh, if I was just saying it was just a movie, I'd tell you it's not a good movie. It's just not entertaining. But it's Hollywood, and they spent $200 million to make it. And, and it's big special effects. And everybody's talking about it. Everybody's saying, what do you think about the movie Noah? What, what do you think about, you know, they've got these rock creatures in the Nephilim in the Old Testament, these giant people. Are, they, he made them rock people. They're kind of like the imps in Lord of the Rings, but they talk and they're rocks and they help build the ark. And then Noah tries to kill his whole family. I'm not giving any spoilers, but, uh, but, but you know, it's just all kind of crazy. It's a big environmental message. People are talking about it. It's everywhere. And while people are talking about it, instead of us just saying, well, it doesn't follow the Bible, so I ain't seeing it, it's junk, it's trash, you know, or whatever we say, uh, you know, and I'm not trying to stereotype our response, but that's, that's what you see on Facebook. It's a piece of trash, it ain't the Bible, I wouldn't go see it. Why not use, while they're talking about a biblical character and a biblical situation, you know the two things that I know are in the movie? God destroys the world because of the sin and degradation of mankind. What a great bridge for you and I to talk about why in the world would God feel so broken over His creation that He was willing to wipe it out? Why does God take sin so seriously that He was going to wipe all of it out? What a great bridge. People are saying, well, what's this story with Noah? Well, it's this. And then what a great bridge to be able to say, but He didn't wipe it out. He showed grace to Noah and his family. Because God still loved man. And so he made a promise, a covenant with one man that, that created all of mankind. What a great bridge then to take it over and say, guess what happens this month? God still loved mankind. He was brokenhearted over the sins of man. But he wasn't going to wipe us out again. So he sent his son to die on a cross because he wanted to give the same grace. See, there's a bridge. You can talk to people. But instead, people stop listening because we throw out cliches or we throw out, you know, just our trite sayings. See, we've got to get to the point to be able to build bridges and, and not walls and open doors. And the second thing, the last thing I think is important, it comes from the Ethiopian eunuch. You see, if we are talking about the, the wise, if you don't know the wise, if you don't understand the wise, then point number two is you need to have the faith to seek the truth. You see, we've stopped digging. We've stopped asking questions. Somehow we've got it in our mind in the church that if you ask questions, it's a lack of faith. Somehow we've decided that to be a Christian, you've got to check your brain at the door. Well, if you believe the Bible, you've got to check your... Just, just don't think, just believe. You can't tell me, preacher, I said that. Wrong! We've got to learn to think. We've got to learn to process. We've got to learn to dig in and find out why Jesus did what He did. Why God did what He did. Why it affects me the way it does. Why it changes my life. I was told when I went to seminary, I remember by many people in my church, you be careful when you go to that seminary because they're going to ruin you. Seriously. What do you mean they're going to ruin me? Yeah, they'll get up there and they'll get you all that book learning and you'll, you'll just be ruined. You'll be no good preacher anymore. And I understand their heart. Somehow the education was going to take away my passion. 
that somehow that by learning truth or by thinking critically or by digging into the Word of God, I, I was going to forget things. Paul tells the Philippians, he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Do you know what that means? It means wrestle. It's okay to have questions. It's okay to admit you don't know. It's okay to say, I don't understand. And it's okay to even doubt sometimes and wrestle with those doubts and understand what those doubts are and find the answers to them. But you see, you'll never find the answers if you're not willing to seek them. If we just sit comfortably in the, the church and say, well, God said it, that's good enough. Amen? That may be good enough for you, but let me tell you something. It's not good enough for your child when they go off to college. And in that class, Dr. Fuzzy Face comes in and he begins to destroy every bit of their faith in, in what they thought the Bible meant. And they can stand on God said it, that's good enough, but they'll go back to their dorm room and go, I don't understand. You see, I would much rather my kids wrestle and struggle and have trouble while I'm there to begin to help them instead of when I send them off somewhere else. I want to teach them to critically think. I want to teach them to ask questions. I want to teach them to be able to say, I don't understand. Why? 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 You see, we, we don't do that anymore. We just say, just believe, right? No. Why? Because that's what the world is asking. That's what they want to know. This eunuch was a religious man, but he wasn't afraid to ask. He wasn't afraid to seek truth. Listen, if you're not doing uh, any critically thinking, you're not doing yourself a favor. We've got to reach in. You know, the Bible says Paul calls this group of believers in Berea in Acts chapter 17. He says they are noble characters. You know why? Because it says they searched the Word of God to find out if what he was saying was true. See, God's Word, listen, God's Word is not intimidated by science. Science and religion are not at odds. God's Word is not intimidated by, by scrutiny or by digging in, by, by asking questions. It's withstood 2,000 years and it's done okay. It, it, it's not going to be hindered by what Hollywood says about it. Noah is not going to diminish what the Word of God says. See, if your faith is too fragile to be examined and questioned, listen to me. If your struggle and your walk is too fragile for you to ask the tough questions, that says more about your faith than it does about God. We've got to learn to critically think. We've got to learn to ask questions. We've got to learn to dig in and listen and, and find truth. Find people that you don't agree with and listen to them. That will challenge you. Find people that you don't understand and listen to them. The Bible says iron sharpens iron. And you'll begin to ask questions. And when you ask questions, you'll be able to get answers. You see, as I said, I think we've gotten lazy. And the lost world and our culture is paying the price. We have got to be like Philip and the eunuch. We've got to have the boldness to engage and build bridges. And we have also have the willingness to seek the truth if we don't know the answers. Preacher was getting on a plane. Sitting down, seatmate came and sat beside him. And if you've ever been on a long flight, the people began to talk. And seatmate looked over and said, hey, I'm so-and-so. He said, uh, what do you do? Well, for a preacher, that's a tough question. Because you, when you say, and I've been there, when you say I'm a pastor, people automatically stereotype. They automatically, oh, Baptist preacher. You know, and, and so, but the pastor said, I, I'm, a, I'm a pastor. The guy kind of backed up and said, oh, he said, you know, I, I go to church. He said, but I, you know, I like to keep my Jesus stuff very simple. You know, uh, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. The pastor kind of nodded and said, okay. 
So what do you do? The guy says, well, I'm a college professor over at the university. I, I teach astronomy. He said, you know anything about astronomy? The pastor said, well, I know a little, but I keep my astronomy very simple. You know, twinkle, twinkle, little star. <laughs> See, I think we keep it too simple. And in keeping it too simple, we're not answering the right questions. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth. God, speak to our hearts. God, that we might be bastions of truth, that we might stand up for your truth to those around us, that people might hear your truth and be changed. But God, let us be bridge builders. Let us be sensitive like Philip was to the word and to the right circumstance and the right situation. Father, let us uh, seek truth. God, I believe there's people here today that are asking questions. People here today that are struggling. People here today that, that are afraid to seek truth because they don't know what they'll find. God, let them dig into Your Word. God, bless us. Challenge us. Direct us. In Your name we pray. Amen. You stand and worship with us. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain.